the Christ that you spurned, the Christ whose name you used in vain, the Christ whom you rejected. Now you meet him face to face and the books are open and your sins are listed out. The evil deeds you have done, the lies you have told, the fights you have fought, the impurities you lusted over, the things you've stolen, the people you've maligned, the folks you gossiped about, all the wrong things you did, every single one is written down. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are looking at the destiny of the doomed. That's the name of our message as we continue our study in the Revelation. The last five verses of chapter 20 give a sobering finale to the lives of those who never put their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. Except it's really not a finale since the final destination of hell is an eternal destination. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he reminds us that it was Jesus who spoke more about hell during his three-year ministry than anyone else mentioned in the Bible. What I find so interesting is that more is said about hell from the lips of incarnate love by the Lord Jesus than any other single person in all of the Bible. And when Jesus describes this place of torment, he describes it as an eternal place of torment. He speaks of eternal fire and eternal punishment. Listen to these words from Matthew 25, 46. Of the saved and of the lost, he said, these will go into eternal, Ionion is the Greek word, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal, same word, life. The Greek word translated here for eternal to describe the place we call the lake of fire or Gehenna hell is the same word that is described to the place where you and I will spend in eternity. And it's the same word that modifies in 1 Timothy the eternal God. So we have Seventh-day Adventists and cults and other groups that deny the eternal retribution of God. The Scripture is clear. The same word that is used to describe the eternal God in eternal heaven is also used to describe eternal wrath. And no one goes to hell where they're just extinguished. That's the false doctrine of what we call annihilationism. You know, some people say, well, if you're lost, you just, you just get dropped in a grave and you cease to exist. That's not the picture in Scripture. And the beast was seized, Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast, he's the Antichrist, was seized. And with him, the false prophet, that's his compatriot, that's his John the Baptist who point men to this false Christ. And the beast was seized, with him, the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The first two humans to enter the lake of fire is the Antichrist and the false prophet. And that's a thousand years before this event. And a thousand years later, when the millennial reign is over, they are still in this place of judgment. Why? Because as Paul says, the Lord Jesus will come from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and he shall deal out eternal retribution to those who do not know God. This is an eternal place. People don't go there temporarily and then they are later restored. No, this is forever. And twice over, it's called the lake of fire in our text. And back in verse 10, it's called the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, I told you that Hades is the temporary place in which a lost man goes. 
But eventually, Hades is cast into the lake of fire. Do you remember Jesus in describing the coming picture of eternal retribution? He spoke in Luke chapter 16 of a rich man who died and went to Hades. And he died and went to Hades not because he was rich, but because he was an unbeliever. Let me read it to you. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and, my, may cool, and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now, I've heard preachers sometimes compare hell to Alcatraz, you know, that prison that no longer exists. It was out there off the coast of California, an island surrounded by water. And they say, well, the lost go to an Alcatraz kind of place, a place of judgment where there's no escape, but it's surrounded by fire. No, that's not what the text says. They are in the fire. This man is in torment. And Revelation 20 says they are in the lake of fire. And listen, when you minimize the doctrine of eternal wrath, what you are really doing is you are minimizing the meaning of the cross. Because on the cross, when Jesus shouts, Tetelestai, paid in full, it's finished. What he paid for there in Golgotha has to equal the payment that you would take an eternity to do. But of course, he as an infinite person could accomplish in a finite period of time what you and I as finite people would take an eternity to do. But please don't buy into any watered-down renditions of hell because Jesus never waters it down any more than the Bible waters down the payment that Jesus made there on Golgotha. In fact, when Jesus wants people to understand the final resting place, Gehenna, he speaks and illustrates it with a valley outside of Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem and they say, well, that's the valley of hell, or more literally, that's the valley of Gehenna. And it was the local garbage dump in the first century. It was the place where the Jewish people would put their garbage and their human waste and their dead animals and the unclaimed body of Gentiles. And it was a place as Josephus, a first century historian, describes it, where there was continual fire and burning and maggots and worms. And when Jesus wants to describe what hell is like, he uses the word Gehenna. This is why we read in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus can say, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into, not Hades, but Gehenna, hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Gehenna, same word. Or in the parallel account in Mark's gospel, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. And then he adds in the next verse, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's why unbelievers need a new body suited for this place. Now, these are dramatic terms. And of course, if you know the text, Jesus is not literally telling you to pluck out your right eye. He's not teaching mutilation. He's teaching mortification. For if you plucked out the right eye, you would still have the left eye as an inlet for sin. And if you cut off the right hand, you'd still have the left hand to execute the temptation. But on the surface, it seems rather dramatic. But Jesus wants you to understand that hell is a dramatic place, and you had better learn to treat sin as sin would treat you. 
Unbelievers will be excluded from the kingdom of God, and they will go to this place of eternal wrath where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And what is even worse, like the rich man who goes there, he is completely cognizant of what is happening. He has his full mental capacity operating. He's in misery. He's in pain. He's in torment. He even thinks of his unbelieving brothers who need to be warned lest they go to this place of judgment. You know, if you've ever been in misery or great pain, I can really say I've only been in awful, excruciating pain for one season of my life when I got my arm caught in a lawnmower. But you know, even when you're, you're in pain, somehow in your mind you manufacture hope. Maybe you're in an extremely cold, frigid place where you can hardly feel your body, or it's so hot and you think, well, if I can just get some painkiller, or if I can just get to a warmer place, or if I can just get to a cooler place, and there's always a sense of hope that things can change. But in hell, you cannot tune out the pain, and you cannot get any relief. One writer some 45 years ago wrote these words, imagine the person who has just entered hell, a neighbor, relative, co-worker, friend. After a roar of physical pain blasts him, he spends his first moments wailing and gnashing his teeth. But after a season, he grows accustomed to the pain, not that it's become tolerable, but that his capacity for it is enlarged to comprehend it, yet not be consumed by it. Though he hurts, he is now able to think, and he instinctively looks about him. But as he looks, he sees only blackness. In his past life, he learned that if he looked long enough, a glow of light somewhere would yield definition to his surroundings. So he blinks and strains to focus his eyes, but his efforts yield only blackness. He turns and strains his eyes in another direction. He waits. He sees nothing but unyielding black ink. It clings to him, smothering and oppressing him. Realizing that the darkness is not going to give way, he nervously begins to feel for something solid to get his bearings. He reaches for walls or rocks or trees or chairs. He stretches his legs to feel the ground but touches nothing. Hell is a place of darkness. Hell is a bottomless pit. However, this new occupant is slow to learn. In growing panic, he kicks his feet, he waves his arms, he stretches and he lunges, but he finds nothing. After more furish tries, he pauses from exhaustion, suspended in black. Suddenly, with a scream, he kicks, twists, and lunges until he is again too exhausted to move. He hangs there alone with his pain, unable to touch a solid object or see a solitary thing. He begins to weep. His sobs choke through the darkness. They become weak, then lost in hell's roar. Of course, he thinks, Jesus, the God of love, can get me out of this. He cries out with a surge, Jesus, Jesus, you were right. Help me. Get me out of this. He waits, breathing hard with desperation. The sound of his voice slips into the darkness and is lost. He tries again, I believe, Jesus, I believe. Now save me from this. Again, the darkness smothers his words. Our sinner is not unique. Everyone in hell believes. When he wearies of appeals, he does what anything anyone would do. He assesses his situation and attempts to adapt, but then it hits him. This is forever. Jesus made it very clear. He used the same word forever to describe both heaven and hell. Forever, he thinks in his mind, labors through the blackness until he aches. 
Forever he whispers in wonder. The idea deepens, widens, and towers over him. The awful truth spreads before him like endless overlapping slats. When I have put in 10,000 centuries of time here, I will have accomplished not one thing, and I will not have one less second to spend here. As the rich man pleaded for a drop of water, so too our new occupant entertains a similar ambition. In life, he learned that even bad things could be tolerated if one could find temporary relief. Perhaps even hell, if one could rest from time to time, would be more tolerable. And he learned so that the smoke of his torment, Revelation 14, 11, goes up forever and ever, and he has no rest day and night. No rest day or night. Think of that. You say, that's so awful. That's so harsh of God. No, it's not harsh, because if you want grace, you can have it. If you want love that wins, if you want mercy that never ceases, if you want forgiveness that cleanses, if you want salvation that delivers, you can have it today if you will call upon Jesus. But you must learn, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. And so John tells us here, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now think your way through this. In any trial, there are three parts. There is the evidence presented against you. There is the defense that you make. And then there is the verdict that is handed down. Let's just imagine that the end of time has come. The millennium has ended. You are in outer space at the great white throne judgment. And the loss of all time, including yourself, are standing there before Jesus Christ. The Christ that you ignored the Christ that you spurned, the Christ whose name you used in vain, the Christ whom you rejected. Now you meet him face to face and the books are open and your sins are listed out. The evil deeds you have done, the lies you have told, the fights you have fought, the impurities you lusted over, the things you've stolen, the people you've maligned, the folks you gossiped about, all the wrong things you did, every single one is written down. And not just the wrong things you have done, but the good things you should have done. For James says, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. And I might not, and I might add, not just the bad things you've done and the good things you should have done, but also the things that you thought. When you lusted in your heart, God wrote down adultery. When you hated with your heart, God wrote down murder. And just the things not just the things you did and the things that you should have done and the things you thought, but also the influence that you had. Jesus said that it is better for a man to have a milestone tied around his neck and drowned in the deepest sea than to cause a, a believer to influence someone into sin. No one goes to hell alone, just like no one goes to heaven alone. I mean, if you're saved, you're going to somehow, in some way, shape, or form, either through sowing a seed or through a direct presentation of the gospel, you're going to bring someone with you. And if you're lost, you won't go to hell alone. You'll influence someone. And that's why God waits to the very end of time for this final judgment. See, it's not time for the pornographer or the beer barons to be judged. Why? Because even though many are dead, they are still influencing people through their works and through their corrupting deeds. And God is waiting until the final period of human history is put on the page, and he will look at all that has happened. And God has written it down. 
And here there is this vile, huge, smelly list of sins in the books of God Almighty. So what will be your defense? You'll say, well, God, I didn't know what church to join. There was a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a Catholic church, a Presbyterian church, an Episcopal church, a church of God, this and that. I didn't know which one to join. And God would say, I didn't tell you to believe in the church. I told you to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Somebody else might say, well, you know, Community Bible Church, I went there and week after week, I saw a hypocrite up there in the choir and I just couldn't make the decision. God would say, I didn't tell you to believe in the hypocrite. I told you to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, God, it was at Carl Brogy. I went to church expecting to feel good and he made me feel bad. He preached on judgment. And God would say, I didn't tell you to believe in the preacher. I told you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, God, I'll tell you why I didn't go forward in that church. He preached, he gave the invitation but I couldn't go down there until I was convinced that I could live it. And God would say, I didn't tell you to believe on yourself. I told you to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Oh God, I didn't get saved because suddenly, almost without notice, I died. And God will say, when Carl Brogy preached that sermon on the destiny of the doomed, he pleaded with you to come to Jesus and you said no. What will you say? What will be your defense? Actually, the Bible teaches you'll have no defense and you'll give no defense. For Romans chapter 3 says, every mouth will be closed. The evidence as it's presented will be so overwhelming, you will be able to say absolutely nothing. And then the verdict will come. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, if you are here this morning and you leave this life, having been born just once, you will die twice, first physically, then eternally. But if you've been born a second time, at best you will die just once because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you don't receive Jesus, Satan will have a claim on your soul. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a sure judgment. This is a severe judgment, but really it's a sad judgment. You know what's so sad about it? By this statement, when God says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, do you know that means? It means your name could have been there because Jesus died for you. It means you could have received grace, but you refused it. So how does the doctrine of eternal retribution apply to us? Let me suggest three applications as we close our time. Number one, the reality of hell should increase my hatred for sin. I mean, think about this. The doctrine of eternal retribution should teach us to hate sin. Why? Because God hates sin. In fact, God hates sin so much He's going to punish it in hell. As the reality of hell violates and offends you, so sin violates and offends God Almighty. Just as we cannot bear to look upon the horrors of hell, neither can God bear to look upon the horrors of sin. As hell revolts you and brings you to the point of hatred for it, so God finds sin revolting. And if sin is this bad and it deserves hell... 
We should hate what God hates. Second, the reality of hell should make me more passionate in my witness. If this biblical truth has really gripped our hearts, will it not affect the way we view unbelievers? I mean, can we see any believer this, unbeliever this week and watch their petty little human activities and goals, realizing what is in store for them for an eternity? The doctrine of eternal wrath compels us to witness, both in word and in deed. It should grip you. And at times, it will make you weep. It should move you to holiness. And this week, it should make a difference in your life as you pray for opportunities. Some of you can't even remember the last time you even invited someone to church. And some of you, when I announced last week, friend day, you just already wrote it off. You have no intention of bringing anybody, much less trying to invite someone. Third and finally, the reality of hell should want to make me be certain that I'm saved. Should make me want to be saved if I'm unsure. Did you notice that there are no born-again Christians at this judgment, only the lost of all time? Why is the believer not at this judgment since we too are equally guilty and have sinned? It's not here. Your works are not here in God's books. Why? Because of what God says through Isaiah the prophet. I wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. For I've redeemed you. I even, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, I will not remember your sins. Peter preached in Acts 3, repent and be converted that your sins may be wiped away. There are many non-Christians who have convinced themselves, I've gotten away with my sin, but your sin will find you out. You say, Pastor, how could God possibly forgive the filth in my heart and what I have done? Because as Isaiah also writes, he was pierced through for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquity. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the impurity of us all to fall upon him. Do you understand that there is someone who took your place there on Golgotha? He loved you so much that he devised a plan so that you would not have to spend one second in hell. It's not a place designed for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. And the devil is the one who is energizing, shaping this world system according to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you're following after the world system, if you have a heart for the sins of this world, my friend, then you are still aligned with the wrong person. And when a person refuses God's way and God's salvation, in the end, he will get Satan's way and he will get the devil's place where he will spend an eternity. Now, there's only one book that's given here by title. It's called the Book of Life. Earlier in the Revelation, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's here for a reason. Some of them might think, oh, wait a minute, my, my, my name is in there. Here, let me find it. Wait a minute, there's my mother's name, and there's my brother's name, Now there's my cousin's name, but my name's not there. 
No name, no entrance. On one occasion, Jesus went and he cast out the demons there in Cursey to Gerardine demoniacs. And you know, the people of that town said, leave us alone. Leave us alone. And some of you here this morning, because you are a free moral agent, can say to God, leave us alone. Leave me alone. And he may give you your way. Amos says, prepare to meet your God. You know, we prepare for everything, for education, for business, our homes. We buy all these insurances for our protection with no assurance of where we will spend eternity. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You can't come to God just whenever you want. No one can come to the Father unless he draws you. And if God has you here today and you're not saved, it's because he loves you. And he put one of his servants in front of you, telling you how you could be forgiven and pleading with you. But God will not make the decision for you, and I certainly can't make it for you. And if somehow I could crawl into your heart and make the decision for you, I would, but I can't. Look, I wish there was no such thing as hell, but there is. And I wish there was no such thing as sin, but there is. There is a hell, but there's also a heaven. And I'm not here today to tell you to go to hell. I'm here to tell you to, to go to heaven if you will call upon Jesus to save you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one's stirring. Some of us here, we're uncertain of our destiny. You may be in Grays. You may be in Graniteville. You may be in Bluffton. You may be listening through the internet or long after this message was preached. But as I have been speaking, the Spirit of God has been convicting you, and you know that there's a decision that you need to make in your heart. Listen, Christ receives sinful men, the Bible says. Whosoever will may come. Whoever will call on his name will be saved. But you must come in faith. You must believe what God promised. And God, I can tell you, can promise what he promised because he did what he did there on that cross. And when God raised him from the dead, he declared Jesus to be Lord, that he was an able substitute because he was sinless. Would you say this morning, Lord Jesus, tell him, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I deserve to go to hell. But I thank you that you came to earth that you died for me. You died instead of me. You took the punishment for all of my sin. And as the resurrected Lord and Savior, I ask you, Lord Jesus, save even me. And because you have saved me, I will openly, publicly, without shame, confess you before men. Father, help someone in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And I ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's study, a look at the judgment throne of God, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. And for today's message, be sure to request the Destiny of the Doomed, message REV62. The rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine is forecast to be complete by June of this year. 
Consequently, we're planning another trip to Israel in late September and a second trip in early October. We've now included our anticipated itinerary online at stsisraeltour.com. Check it out and fill out the information request form to be updated on developments of the trip. That web address again is stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow, we move into Revelation 21 and part one of a message entitled, When Heaven Comes to Earth. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>